Good morning. I'm so thankful that you've joined us here at East Shore Baptist Church uh, here in the service. I'm also thankful for those of you who may be watching online. I have a lighthearted question for you to start this morning. Uh, it may seem a little odd, but, but I'll explain it. My question is, how do you eat a meal? How do you eat a meal? If somebody serves you a plate and there's several different food items on it, how do you go about attacking that meal? Now, some of you may see the thing on that plate that you like the most, and you go right for that and eat that as quickly as possible. Others, maybe you're like me. I'm someone, I see what's there, and I see what I like most, and I purposely leave that last. I eat everything else, and then that thing I like best at the end. I'm a save the best for last kind of person. I like that last taste to be a delicious one that, that I can hold with me as I leave that meal. Now, just because I do that, that doesn't mean I don't like the things I eat first. Often I really do. I like a lot of food. I enjoy what I eat first. But what's last is better. That first thing is a good appetizer for an even better meal that is to come. And so today we're going to talk about a different kind of appetizer. Our passage today is Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. It's telling us the story of Jesus's transfiguration, which is a foretaste, an appetizer of Jesus's heavenly glory. If you've been here, you know that we've been reading through the gospel, the good news according to Mark. He's telling us the story of Jesus while trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? What is he like? And why does that matter? In Mark's gospel in particular, he's really emphasized Jesus's humanity, Jesus was a man, just like we are, lived the same way we did. That's been his main focus, but this passage is a little different, because that's not the full story of Jesus. Yes, he was fully a man, but he was also fully God. And in our passage today, Mark is going to make that very clear. This story is also in Matthew chapter 17 and Luke 9, but here in Mark, it fits in in a very interesting place. Jesus has just been having a conversation with his disciples one of them, Peter, has said, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Jesus agreed with that, but then he explained to him that that's going to be a little different than he thinks. He talked about how this Messiah is going to suffer as a man. They're having this conversation in a city to the far north of Israel called Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus is telling his disciples that being the Messiah is going to involve suffering and death before glory. But now, in our passage today, he's going to let a few of his disciples get a taste, an appetizer of that glory that's going to come after his death and resurrection, once his work is complete. To do this, Mark is going to give us three truths about Jesus in this text, and he's also going to give us an appropriate response we should have to those truths. We're going to learn that Jesus is God, that he's better than everything that came before, and that he will suffer and die for us. And that should motivate us to worship him, to be changed by him and his glory. It should lead us to listen to him and to know him, to have a relationship with Jesus. So if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. And that's the big nine, little one through 13. It's going to be up on the screen, but if you want to use that blue Bible in the seat back in front of you, it should be on page 1004, 1004. And once you are there, 
in Mark chapter 9. If you are able, I would ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along as I'm going to read our passage for today, Mark chapter 9, verse 1 through verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 1 begins with Jesus talking to his disciples. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, he, Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? In verse 12, Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let me pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, help us to get a taste, an appetizer of your true glory. Lord, may this passage teach us that Jesus, your Son, is God. May it teach us that He's better than anything or anyone else we can compare Him to. May it remind us of what He did for us, that He suffered and died to pay the penalty for our sin. God, lead us to respond to those truths by worshiping Him, because He's worthy of worship, by allowing him to change us from the inside out because his glory is so great, to listen to him because he is your beloved son, and to know him because he is worth knowing. God, I pray that our focus would be on your son Jesus today. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to explore three truths about Jesus that Mark gives us in this text. The first is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Our passage starts picking up with the conversation Jesus was having with his disciples after Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus tells his disciples in verse 1 that truly, assuredly, there are some standing here who will not taste death before or until they see the kingdom of God 
coming with power. There are some who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And doing research for this, there are a lot of different theories about what in the world that verse means. Some people say it's talking about Jesus' resurrection. Some say they're talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Some say it's about the spread of the early church. Some say it's about the destruction of the Jewish temple in the year 70 AD. There are lots of theories, and, and there could be elements of truth in each one of those. But I'll say for me, and the majority of the scholars I looked at, they say the most likely thing Jesus is talking about is his transfiguration, because that's literally what happens next, immediately after he says this. In this verse here, verse 1, Jesus is promising some of his disciples that they will get this taste of glory. They will see some of his kingdom glory, his heavenly glory, while they're still on this earth. His transfiguration points to the glory that will appear when he returns to reign and rule. Jesus hints at this later in Mark. In Mark chapter 13, he says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Some of them are going to get a small taste of that experience. It's this coming of Christ that we are waiting for today. Because he died and rose again, he's now in glory with the heavenly Father, and someday he will return with that glory. We will see and worship him. And Jesus is about to reveal some of that to a few of his disciples, a taste of that glory. We read in verses 2 and 3 that he brings his closest followers, the inner circle among his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a high mountain. Now, traditionally, this mountain is said to be a mountain south of the Sea of Galilee called Mount Tabor. That's where a church is that celebrates this event. Most scholars today, though, think it didn't happen there, but it instead happened in a mountain called Mount Hermon, which is in the far north of Israel. Mount Tabor is more of a hill. Mount Hermon is a high mountain. It was also very close to where they had this conversation, where Peter said, you are the Christ. They were very close to that. It's a high mountain. In fact, it's often snow-capped. I think there's a ski resort there. It would make sense that that's where they were going. But wherever it is, once they are there, we're told very simply, Jesus was transfigured. He was transformed before them. Mark really doesn't have the words to convey what's happening here. It's almost hard to describe. Probably the best, and it's not perfect, the best analogy we could make is a caterpillar. If you've ever seen a caterpillar, it's a small little worm-like thing, but it goes in the cocoon and then emerges as this beautiful, colorful butterfly. Something happens that changes that animal. In the same kind of way, that's what the disciples are seeing. They've seen Jesus as a man, but now they see what he will be like in eternity. They get a glimpse, a preview of his radiant, shining glory. They see the truth that he is God. Mark describes his clothes as being intensely or dazzlingly or exceedingly white, whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. The, the thought that popped into my head reading that was when we have snow in Pennsylvania. I know we didn't this past winter, but normal winters when we have snow, if you ever see it out on a field, perhaps if there's been a little other moisture, it's kind of iced over. And if it's a sunny day and the sun hits that snow, this blinding light that comes at you, that's, 
close to the image of what they're seeing here, this blinding white light. It shows us that Jesus is God. He is the very glory of light. By describing it as a white light, perhaps Mark is referencing the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's glory is described that way. In the book of Daniel, Daniel says that as I looked, thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days, God took his seat, and look what he says, his clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool, and his throne fiery flames, the wheels burning fire. That's how he was described in the Old Testament. And the Apostle John will see Jesus like this again. The very last thing John writes, he gets a revelation from Jesus, a message of comfort and looking toward the future. And look what, how John describes Jesus. He says, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. It's a description of his glory. In this moment, Jesus's true nature is bursting forth. It's not that Jesus was up on the mountain and God dropped some glory on him. No, it's shown from Jesus, from the inside out. It was the truth of who he really is. We read elsewhere in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is them seeing that radiance. It's the most heaven-like moment that anyone could ever experience here on earth. The Protestant reformer John Calvin called it a temporary exhibition of his glory, which is a real understated way of saying it, but so true there. It, I like that description because it reminds me of going to a museum. I like going to museums, and if you go to one, there's the exhibits that are there all the time, but then there's the temporary ones, the special ones that are just there for a moment. You need to catch them then before they're gone. And so here in this moment, they have a brief second where they can see Jesus's true glory. Another scholar, Danny Aiken, puts it this way, for a brief moment, our Lord's true identity is allowed to shine forth in all its glory. Here is the Christ that they will see when he triumphantly comes the second time to establish his universal kingdom. In this moment, the disciples are getting a sneak peek of what will one day be clear to everyone. And this must have been so moving and surprising for them because on earth they knew Jesus as a man, someone like them, a humble carpenter, but in eternity he will be dazzlingly glorious. I missaid that completely. He will be glorious in a dazzling way that we could not even fathom. Some writers try to put this in words to us. One who I think does it really well is Charles Wesley. My favorite Christmas carol is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And in the second verse, he puts a description of kind of what the disciples are seeing here or recognizing. That Jesus as a man is veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hailed the incarnate deity. Normally, this Godhead, this glory was veiled, but in this moment, they see it. And what lesson can we take from this? Well, if we're going to take application from the fact that Jesus is God, that means that we should worship Him. We should worship Him and know that His glory will change us. We should worship and be changed by Him. Jesus is worthy of our worship, our praise. That's why we spent the whole first part of the service before now singing songs to Him, because He is worthy of worship. 
It's why we live for Him every day. And part of the reason we do that is because His glory is so great, it's not only something we can see at a distance, but it's something that changes us. His brightness changes who we are. Just as the disciples saw His appearance change, He changes our character. If we know Jesus, if we're close to Him, then He molds and shapes who we are. His glory changes us. And we're told that He is making us holy, set apart for God as He is holy. The Apostle Paul loved to write about this. In the book of 2 Corinthians, he puts it this way, we all with an unveiled face, we are beholding the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He is slowly changing us to look like him. He says in another place in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. It's using the same idea of what happened what's happening to Jesus in our passage. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He changes us so that we can discern and know what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. As we worship, we ask God to make us more and more like his son. We worship him and he changes us. So that's the main thing that's happening here, but what does that really mean practically? Is there some practical lesson we draw from here? Is there something it's really saying about who Jesus is? Yeah, he's God, but so how does that impact my life? Well, it's also teaching us that Jesus is better. The passage teaches us that Jesus is better. We see that in those who are interacting with Jesus. We read that the Old Testament prophet Elijah and the great Old Testament leader Moses, they appear on the mountain. They begin talking with Jesus in verse 4. In many ways, this is a familiar scene. The Old Testament talks about both Moses and Elijah talking with God on mountains. Moses is in Exodus 24, Elijah is in 1 Kings 19, and both of them are mentioned together at the end of the last prophetic book. The last prophet Malachi talks about both Moses and Elijah. We're not going to look at all of these things, but if we really steered into Moses' case, there's actually a lot of similarities going on here. In Moses' description, when he's on the mountain, there's also three other named people who are there. They're described, Moses has a shining body. God comes in a cloud. There's a voice from the cloud. People are afraid of this voice. Mark means for us to see these similarities to Moses. Where did these men come from? Hadn't they been dead for a while? Well, most likely they came from the presence of God to talk with Jesus, to show that Jesus is better than them. I read something from one person who speculated that maybe they weren't coming from the presence of God. Maybe in space and time, it was all three of them meeting at the same moment. I, that blows my mind a little bit, but maybe that's what's happening here. Regardless, they're here to prove that Jesus is better than anything or anyone else. Another gospel writer, Luke, says, tells us what they're talking about. He says they're talking about Jesus' departure, literally his exodus from this world to go back to God after his death and resurrection. You see this moment here? Here is Moses. He's the one who parted the Red Sea. He's the one who got the Ten Commandments. He's the one who saw all those plagues in Egypt. Here's Elijah. He called down fire from heaven and did great works, but when the those two get together with Jesus, the topic of conversation is Jesus and Jesus alone. 
that yeah, those things are cool, but Jesus, what you're about to do is much better than what we did. After all, Moses, when he was with God, he just reflected God's glory from the mountain. Jesus was transfigured. He revealed God's glory because he is the source of glory. Here in Exodus, it says, Moses came down with the two tablets of testimony, and he did not know the skin of his face shone. It shone because he had been talking with God. Jesus shone because he is God. The point is Jesus is better than Moses and Elijah. He's greater than their works, the law and the prophets, because he fulfills them. Jesus said in the book of Matthew, do not think that I've come to abolish the Old Testament law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. He completes their mission, their purpose. One pastor, Kent Hughes, puts it this way, Jesus was the fulfillment of everything toward which the law pointed. He fulfilled what the sacrificial system was teaching. He fulfilled every messianic prophecy, everything toward which their religion and history had been moving is met in Jesus. He is better. Now, this beautiful moment here is spoiled a little bit because Jesus' disciple Peter, who's always one to talk and says what he's thinking, he jumps in to this conversation in verse 5. He says, Jesus, it is good, it is wonderful that we are here with you. And what he wants to do is build three tents, shelters, tabernacles, perhaps places to worship, or maybe just to prolong this experience. But Mark quickly tells us in verse 6 that he did not know what to say. He didn't know what he was talking about. All of them were terrified and frightened. They were greatly afraid of this heavenly display of glory. I was trying to wrap my mind around this combination of emotions, this feeling that this is wonderful, but also being afraid. The best I could come up with was, and maybe you've had this experience too, have you ever been at a place where you can look out and you can see for quite a distance and you've seen a thunderstorm slowly roll toward you? Now, as long as you're under shelter, you don't have to worry about the storm, but you can see the power of it coming. You see the lightning flashing as it slowly and slowly gets close to you. That's the closest I think I could wrap my head around this, to be able to see something that's wonderful and powerful, but also to be afraid. Peter, he loves Jesus, and he doesn't know what to do, so he just says the first thing that comes to his mind. And he gets some things right here. He's right that when God shows his glory, the focus belongs on him. He's not thinking about himself. He's like, yeah, let's honor you. And he also knows it's good to be in God's presence. It's something that we do not want to leave. The British pastor J.C. Ryle says, the feelings of which Peter had a little foretaste will then be ours in full experience. He's having this great moment, but it's just temporary. But there's a couple problems with what Peter's saying. One is that those who are in heaven do not need an earthly dwelling. Jesus doesn't need a tent or tabernacle. Moses and Elijah, probably with God and glory, they don't need that as well. We don't need a particular place where we have to worship God. What makes our church a church is not just this building, but the people in it filled with God's Spirit worshiping Him. We're blessed by this building, but it's the people that make it a church. So that's one area he's a little off on. He's also off because he says he wants to build three tents or tabernacles. In this moment, maybe he's seen Jesus as someone very similar to Moses and Elijah rather than someone far better than them. And God can't let this confusion 
stay here. So it leads God himself to respond in verse 7. And since all the kids are downstairs, I apologize for using language that I wasn't allowed to use at home, but it's like God saying to Peter, shut up, Peter, listen to Jesus. I know you're thinking you know what's right, but this is my beloved son. He is the one to listen to. And when God speaks of the disciples thought they understood who Jesus is, now they definitely grasp it. We're told that a cloud overshadows and covers them. It's a reference to God's glory in the Bible, a cloud of his presence. Again, in the book of Exodus, Moses is said to go up a mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on that mountain. The cloud covered it six days and on the seventh, God spoke. He called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Some people pointed out that it's interesting that it says that it was six days the cloud was here because we read back in verse 2 that it's been six days after Peter said Jesus is the Messiah. Perhaps Mark is also referencing that. Regardless, in this moment, God speaks. He affirms to the disciples, Jesus is his beloved. Jesus is his dearly loved son. And what's the lesson for them and for us? Well, the lesson is if Jesus is God's son, he is someone to be listened to. He is someone to be heard. God is rebuking Peter's desire to honor all three here. He says, no, Jesus is the one to worship. He is the one, the promised one God has sent to his people to listen to. Moses himself spoke about a prophet who would come. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. God is saying, here is the one to listen to. Here is the one. For the second time, Jesus is being endorsed by God so that if you're not listening to him, you're not listening to God. In the very first chapter, a voice came from heaven and said about Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And here God endorses Christ again. I, I like that, that word because it, it's a word we use often in our day where you're coming up on next year, there'll be another presidential election and you will hear a lot of talk about endorsements. This person's endorsing that person. This one's endorsing that one. With endorsements, you want as many as you can get. And the more powerful the person is who endorses you, the better. So here is Jesus, the beloved Son of God, and he is being endorsed by the Holy God the Father. Well, that's better than any other political endorsement. God is speaking to his identity. He's helping the disciples to understand who Jesus is, to know the truth. And because of this moment and so many others, but particularly this one, it helped the disciples get the picture. Two of the men who we see here will write about this years later. Years after this, Peter writes about this event in 2 Peter. Look what he says. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't a story someone told us. Look what he says. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born, a voice came to him by the majestic glory. Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is remembering this event. He's saying, we saw that glory. That's what makes us believe. 
The Apostle John also writes about it, but he puts it a bit more simply. He says, the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. It was the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's probably talking about all of Jesus' ministry, but he definitely saw his glory in this event. Well, as I said, it's just an appetizer. It's just a foretaste, and so it's not going to last forever because it does end. Back in our text in verse 8, the disciples suddenly look around, and they see no one but Jesus only. Moses and Elijah are gone, and only Jesus remains because he is superior. He is better. Moses wrote the law. The law had a purpose. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets. The prophets and their work had a purpose, but those men and their works, their purpose was to point to someone else. Their purpose was to point to Jesus. We just get wrapped up in what they said and miss that they're directing us to Christ. We miss the point of what they were trying to do. Pastor Ken Hughes said, this is what all our experience, all our theology, all our work should come to, seeing only Jesus. Because when this happens, our hearts will honor him in worship. We will see Jesus. The disciples had seen Jesus, and now they're going to, about to be challenged to follow him. And he gives the same challenge to us. The lesson to them is the same as it is to us. If Jesus is better than anything else, that means he is the one we should listen to. We should listen to him. Jesus is better. Listen to him. He's the one we should know. He's the one that we should listen to. He's the one whose word we should rely on, first and foremost. Not our experience. Oh, I've been through a lot. I I know what to do in this situation. Not our tradition. Well, I've always done it this way. Not our favorite teacher or internet pastor. Yes, they may be entertaining, say great things, but Jesus is the one we should focus on. Not our favorite TikTok theologian. No, Jesus is the one to listen to to rely on, to trust, to trust his word. Pastor Ryle says, what says Christ? Him let us hear. In him let us abide. On him let us lean. To him let us look. He and he only will never fail us, never disappoint us, never lead us astray. On that mountain, Moses and Elijah just appeared for a moment, but Jesus remained. He is the one to trust. So let me ask you as you go from here to think about it. Where do you go for truth? When you need to figure out what exactly is right and wrong, do you trust your experience? Do you trust what other people say? Or do you go to Jesus? If you need wisdom on making a decision, do you rely on how you made decisions in the past? Or do you go to Jesus? When you're hurting, when you're grieving, when you're struggling, do you try to find someone else to relate to, or do you get your comfort first and foremost in Jesus Christ? He is better. We should go to him first. Now, you may wonder why. Why should I go to him? I get, okay, he was God, he's better, but what's so great about it? What has he ever done for me? Well, Mark is very quick to bring up to our attention that Jesus suffered for us. Jesus suffered for us. I use the word suffered here and and on your sheet for the blank because that's the word that is particularly used in the verses we're reading. Uh, Jesus uses that in uh, 
verse, verse 12, I believe. But uh, when I say suffered, I'm also in, including his death. He suffered and he died for us, for our sins, so that we would know him and that we would listen to him. The experience is over, so verse 9 tells us that they're on their way down the mountain, and as they head down, for the last time here in Mark, Jesus charges and orders them to be quiet, to not tell anyone about what they have seen. But this time he gives a time limit. He says, don't tell anyone until his resurrection, as it says, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. We've talked a lot about this in Mark, and this is the last time we'll see it, that Jesus often told people not to tell others because he didn't want to confuse them at this time. He didn't want people to think he was an earthly political leader. He was there to meet their needs right at the moment. After he raises from the dead, then his mission is clear. The resurrection means that Jesus' life makes sense. His purpose is clear. He died. He came back to life so he could take our punishment and give us eternal life with God. That's not clear at this time, but it will be after his resurrection. Verse 10 tells us the disciples, they seem to agree, Peter, James, and John, they agree with that, but they discuss, they question among themselves, what does this rising from the dead mean? Their minds are seized by this statement. They do not understand what it means, but they're trying to put the pieces together. So they ask Jesus a question, something they're confused about. They say, Jesus, why do the scribes, our teachers of the law, say that the prophet Elijah will come first. They were taught that when the end is coming, the great end, the prophet Elijah will come and then the Messiah will bring an eternal kingdom. And they're confused because they're with Jesus who says he is the Messiah, but they saw Elijah on the mountain, but they haven't seen Elijah walking around. The reason they believe this is because the Old Testament said, God said, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So they're confused. And Jesus graciously answers their question. He tries to help them understand. He agrees with them. Yes, Elijah comes first, but he directs their attention to the larger point. He says in verse 12, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But here's the bigger point, disciples. How is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He's trying to teach them, you're expecting this great leader to come right now, but things are going to be different than how you expect. Elijah and the Messiah, they're not going to immediately reign and rule, but instead they will be suffered. They will suffer. They'll be rejected, treated with contempt. They will die. His point is that suffering, dying, and the Messiah reigning and ruling, they go together, but one comes before the other. He's appealing to places in the Old Testament that speak about a great leader being one who suffers and dies. The prophet Isaiah wrote about a suffering servant from God that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed we'd cared for him not. The people who would have taught Peter, James, and John would look at a passage like that and say, well, that's talking about God's people as a whole. We're expecting somebody to reign and rule and kick all our enemies out right now. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm first going to suffer and die, and then the reigning and the ruling will come after. I am both the one who suffers and the one who saves. And then he tells the disciples, you're looking for Elijah, and Elijah has come. It wasn't literally Elijah, but John the Baptist fulfilled 
that role. That's what Jesus says here means when he says Elijah has come, and we can see that elsewhere in the Gospels. Luke, before John the Baptist is even born, his father is told that John will go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus himself says in the Gospel of Matthew that all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. John the Baptist prepared the way for the Messiah. He prepared the way for people to be restored to God. But just like Jesus, he also was rejected and killed for that message. We read that back in chapter 6. John the Baptist was arrested and executed by the ruler of that region. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples there's not going to be a big military campaign right now. God's kingdom is coming through faith in me, not conquest. The religious leaders of his day had missed that point. They missed the point that God's kingdom came through Jesus Christ. But that was his message from the beginning. Right after John was arrested, in the very first chapter of Mark, we read, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. He proclaimed the gospel, the good news of God, and said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here now. Repent, turn, and believe in the gospel. This is the same call Jesus gives to us. Here in our text, they just saw his glory, but he tells them, before you see that again, there is going to be suffering. Not pointless suffering, but suffering for us and our salvation. Jesus wants them and he wants us to know that because he suffered for us, we should know him. We should have a relationship with him. We should call out to him in faith and trust. The way that happens is doing what I just read in that passage. It's repenting, turning away from our sin and wrong against God, and instead believing and trusting in what Jesus does on our behalf. If the taste of God's glory that we described today, this thing we didn't even have words for, I try to use a butterfly or light shining off snow, if just that little bit of glory described here made you think, you know, maybe this is someone I should know more, then I'd encourage you to seek after Christ, read more about him, discover how your sin pushed you away from God, but how his grace can restore that relationship. Ask someone, how can I turn from sin and believe and trust in Jesus? Come to know him. Because if you do know him, then what we talked about today won't just be an appetizer of God's glory. It will be something that we experience in reality ourselves. If we know Jesus, if we have a relationship with him, then someday we will be with God in glory. We will know him perfectly. We can listen to him clearly. We will have been changed to perfectly reflect his glory. We can purely honor and worship Jesus, because he alone is worthy of our worship.